Hello, everyone. This is Brock Lurie on the Brock Lurie Podcast. As usual, thank you so much for being on the show uh, and listening. Uh, always very helpful to get input from the listeners. Uh, by the way, my new book, um, Keeping the Kids All Right, uh, it's going to be coming out in the middle of July. There was a little bit of a delay before, but now it's all good and uh, very excited about it. It's also going to be available in Audible for those of you who like to hear things on, uh, uh, you know, audibly. It's a lot of fun. It's about how parents can make sure that their kids don't become rabid liberals or progressives or God, God forbid, woke. <laughs> so that's the last thing we want. Um, in any event, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's not that long a book. It's about 170 pages or so. And uh, people already seem to be raving about it. So with all the advanced copies. Uh, today, we want to talk about massively the issues of the Supreme Court. And there have been a bunch of decisions that just came down, very exciting, all of them favorable to the conservative cause. The uh, example of the um, the loan that, not sorry, sorry, the forgiveness of loans that the Biden administration tried to Im impose on the taxpayers, that's not going to pass. Um, it's been held unconstitutional. That should be no surprise. It's a separation of powers issue. Um, and the fact is that we all know that Biden was just pushing that uh, just before the 2022 elections for purposes of pandering uh, and hopefully getting younger people to vote for him. Uh, it's it just rapidly unfair. So uh, then the other issue, uh, another major one, was this Colorado woman who uh, was a web designer and she refused to set up a, um, a website for purposes of uh, helping out, I believe, a, a gay wedding or a transgender celebration of some kind. Either way, she didn't want to do it. And they tried to force her to do it. And the court said uh, that she was right. They were wrong. Uh, the effort to make her do something is something we call slavery. Uh, and she just didn't want to do it. And it was also a violation of her free speech rights as well. So she has an opinion. Uh, you may not like her opinion, but that doesn't mean that you can force her to agree with your statements whether that's a celebration of a gay wedding uh, or anything else. I mean, a celebration of a KKK rally. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. The fact that people couldn't think ahead of themselves as to the possibilities, how this might play against them, that, that doesn't make any sense. For example, uh, what if it would, the, the baker was black instead of uh, this woman who is a Christian? Uh, he's, uh, he's black and uh, a member of the KKK comes to him and wants to have a celebration of the great life and times of Robert Byrd, or for that matter, General Lee uh, from the South. Uh, would the would that black baker be required to do so? I think everyone would agree that that would be offensive and not right, and everyone would be celebrating his right not to do that. So, but but they can't even see past that. That's the left. That's it's so bizarre. Uh, What's interesting to me is always about how the left always thinks in terms of the solutions. They, they, it, we had a podcast about this a long time ago, folks, uh, where I said that for the left, their solution is always the solution. It's the only solution, right? And and you can you're only allowed to quibble about within the parameters of the solution that they give you. So, for example, minimum wage, right? For them, that's the only solution to poverty or income uh, disparities. That, that's it. No, nothing more, right? Uh, so the, the, you're allowed to argue whether it should be $15 an hour or $12 an hour or $18 an hour. That's, that's the parameter that they want to, uh, to give you. Same thing is true with uh, taxes, you know, what the rate of the taxing is. Uh, same thing with the rent control, like I said. Uh, you know, to what extent shall rent control be imposed? It should be 3% per year, 4% per year. Should, but they never say there should not be any rent control. They're always, it's always about their solution at the end of the day. And likewise, it comes to the next big issue, which is the affirmative action decision. Um, as you know, uh, they, meaning the left, believes that the only way to avoid the disparities of past racial discrimination uh, and suffering is by way of affirmative action, and we're going to give uh, blacks and other minorities this massive leg up uh, at the very end of their educational careers, uh, and we're going to let them go into Yale, Harvard, and Stanford, and uh, everything will work out that way. Okay, so, uh, but with me on that very issue uh, is a great gentleman and scholar, Ward Connolly, and uh, he's going to be co-hosting with me today. I'm so excited to have him. He is the president of the American Civil Rights Institute, 
He was born in Louisiana in 1939, same year as my mom, by the way. Uh, he was fully orphaned in 1943. Wow, only four years old. Uh, and uh, became a major opponent of race-conscious policies and race classifications. And eventually became the a, a regent at the University of California from 1993 to 2005. And uh, also a very successful California businessman. And uh, Ward uh, Connolly, thank you so much for joining the Brucklery Podcast. Welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure. I uh, I told my staff that you're a show that I want to remain on because you're so well informed about the issue, and and uh, it's just a delight to be with you. Well, thank you, Ward. I, it, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk. Uh, you, you and I have spoken quite a bit about uh, the decision um, that the court came down with recently. And boy, what a great decision it was. And, uh, you know, before this decision came down, you and I spoke about the possibility that the court would come down with a split decision where it would be somehow okay for a private institution like Harvard to engage in this selective racial um, preference. And uh, public school like uh, UNC, University of North Carolina, uh, that they would not be allowed to engage in this. And that, that would be their split decision. Um, but fortunately, that's not what happened. The court completely uh, rejected affirmative action in every sense of the word. I didn't give any quarter to those who somehow felt that uh, affirmative action should give a leg up to people with uh, who are different races and different minority status, different ethnic backgrounds. Nope, nothing like that at all. And it was very extensive. It was a real takedown of the issue. Let me ask you, uh, Ward, what, what, first of all, what, I mean, you're, you're a black American. Uh, what made you become so op opposing of the race conscious policies and race classifications? Uh, and, and when did that happen? Well, I've always instinctively had a, an adverse reaction to the racial classification business because my family is, my legacy historically is that of Choctaw Indian, mixed uh -huh. in, some Irish, huh. uh, along with uh, African descent on my father's side. I didn't see my father for about 55 years but my great-grandmother was born a slave, Sarah Ford, hmm. and her husband was her owner. Um, the Self family, Charles Self. So this slave and former slave owner uh, married and produced uh, Roy Connerly, who produced Ward Connerly, Wardell <laughs> Connerly. Right. And all of that, Barack, was mixed in with my maternal mixture of white and uh, Choctaw. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and so I just, at my root, hate racial classifications mm. because they're so idiotic and increasingly so as we melt into that pot, uh, the classifications are no longer relevant. Yeah, and uh, so, so I began with that perspective, and as a regent, I saw for the first time this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff in 1994. And I remember saying to a colleague, I, I was chairing the committee on the board of regents, and I said, "What the hell is this nonsense?" And one of the administrators were saying. Regent Connerly, we must celebrate our diversity. And I said, what are you talking about? And um, it was at that point that I began to realize where this could all end up. And it wasn't a good destination. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, it was really around 1994 that I began to see where we were going, not from ending all discrimination, which is what John F. Kennedy wanted when he said race has no place in American life or law and ushered in affirmative action, 
we were going into a system of which racial discrimination for seemingly benign purposes was going to become the law of the land, or at least the practice of, of administrators who believed they were doing God's work by discriminating against people. Yeah. So that was the beginning for me. You know, what's interesting is that as you speak, it, it, it dawns on me that I wonder how the founding fathers, when they were writing up the Constitution and they talked about every man being equal, uh, it must have dawned on them the inconsistency to them about, well, you know, what about black men <laughs> and, and women for that matter? Why? It, it, it was this cognitive dissonance that must have been playing out within their heads. And I, I think the same sort of cognitive dissonance should be playing out among intelligent uh, African-American or Black Americans and other minorities in America to say, look, this ain't right. The, the, the concept that we should prefer somebody on the grounds of their race and, and by by definition uh, not prefer others because of the, the pigmentation of their skin, that just sounds wrong to us. And it must be a cognitive dissonance. And, and here, I think with this decision, we finally have resolved uh, uh, that situation. And Look, I, I, one of the things I want to talk to you about is the notion, I'm, I'm hearing this a lot from our conservative friends, uh, myself included, but a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, that's great that the Supreme Court said this, but um, you know, there, there's the universities, including Harvard uh, and UNC and Stanford and all those great schools are going to somehow find a way to get around uh, this and still somehow uh, structure things in such a way that they'll still have the same number of students applying to Harvard who are black, who are getting in the same percentages and such. So that, in other words, they're, they're going to ignore this ruling. Uh, what do you think about that? Because I, I have an opinion about that. Well, I think that they will be dishonest. And uh, I've seen evidence of it serving my 12-year unpaid sentence <laughs> as a that you see. So I, uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic to those who anticipate that they're going to try to do that, and they will do that. But I think that if we allow them to do so in the face of this decision, I never had any doubt that they were wrong in my view personally, but if we as the citizens put our democracy on autopilot and we just allow them to proceed knowing that we're in the right then shame on us well because... yes exactly right I, I i here's here's my approach on this and i think it would be shame on us that the difference between this decision and let's say the 1978 baki versus border regions case um where a medical student sued successfully on the grounds that he was displaced from a position in a very limited um, uh, medical student pool. I think it was like 150 students. Um, and, and he sued on the grounds that this was unfair, it was racial discrimination. They agreed with him. The difference there, Ward, is that in the Bakke decision, they didn't get rid of affirmative action altogether. They simply said, look, you, you, you can have race as a factor, but you can't have this quota system. Somehow that was their big compromise. And so what the schools did is say, okay, great, no quotas, no problem at all. So they went instead of, let's say, 20% uh, Black Americans applying, they went to 80% or 60% or whatever it is, much higher amount than ever before. So we ended up with uh, even more unfair um, and, and, you know, preferences for Black and other minority students than uh, than ever before. So the difference now, however, is that this court has said that any race-based preferences is unconstitutional in and of itself, which yeah. really sets the, it lays down the marker um, in the same way as saying, look, you know, the speed limit is 65, okay? <laughs> you might be able to go, you know, 68 or 72. Yeah, probably the cops won't stop you, but you go 100, you're going to be pulled over. And I think there's something to that here. Yes. So let's let's say Harvard, just to use that as an example, says, I don't care. I'm going to we're going to continue to um, uh, admit students of color, uh, people of color, as they call it, 
um, and uh, damn the torpedoes. Well, what's going to happen is people, families will be able to sue Harvard on the grounds that this is purely unconstitutional. You know, so yes, we'll still have it. Uh, I, I agree with that, but at least there'll be a weapon, uh, a procedural judicial weapon that people can use to uh, to steer it more clearly. And I think Harvard will not want to be sued over and over again. Um, it's very similar to uh, labor law. For example, I'm, I'm an employer, you're an employer. Uh, the laws are very clear about, you know, what you can say, what you can't do vis-a-vis -vis an employee. And no doubt, um, for example, sexual harassment, okay? But no doubt the employers still do it. Um, and they can be sued, though. That's that's the whole point. Now we have uh, something in our bailiwick that we can fight with. How about that for an explanation? Well, I, yeah, I agree with you, but I, I, I think it even goes further. Um, right. The court essentially said, if the contours of your system are based on factors that you think will achieve that outcome, because the race, the classifications themselves are so pernicious, if you think that the contours of your decision-making process, if they're based on race, or even if they seem like they're based on race, you're breaking the law. Good. Good. Constitutionally, constitutionally, we don't allow that. It's not only colorblind, but the system can't be rigged and, uh, to achieve your outcome. I mean, it, it's a very compelling overall opinion about race in the country, and it brings to life what John F. Kennedy said when he's when he first brought affirmative action into existence, and he said, race has no place in American life or law, which is what Martin Luther King wanted. That opinion is not what he wanted, but Martin Luther King was saying, you can't have done what you've done to us all these years and now say that you don't want race to be a factor. Uh, I, I want you to give us a racial remedy. That was King's approach. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I thought, I thought yeah. that he, he would have said, you know, judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. But I guess he, he, he was okay with uh, some sort of race-based preferences. Yeah, he was, uh, especially to black people, because we had been discriminated against. And Kennedy didn't buy it. Kennedy said, no, no, race has no place in American life or law. And he wanted a colorblind approach. Yeah. And, and I think right now, Kennedy would look at this and say, I told you so. <laughs> uh, right. Because we went we went totally in the wrong direction. And Gorsuch and Thomas and Roberts, as you read their opinions, they get it. They understand what this diversity stuff was all about. Yeah. And why race is such an insidious way to be dealing with the American people in the context of a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, as Lincoln said. Yeah. They brought it, Brock, they brought it all into focus and gave us a new beginning. They reset the country with that opinion, with their opinion. The three of them really gave us a moral focus of why we are what we are as a country. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And one of the things that I think is coming to light at this point. It's a little bit like all those movies where you see, you know, these devastating consequences of uh, something that, you know, has occupied a particular place and you, th then the police finally come and you see the devastation that has been wrought. And yeah. I think the devastation that the affirmative action policies have wrought is this, you know, contrary to the intention, even if it's assuming that you can ascribe them to a good intention, um, the, the the polarization of America yeah. has been greater than ever before. There's yeah. there's more of a sense of 
racial di disparities and, um, and for that matter, resentment. Uh, and that's a that's a big deal. People have to think about that. Uh, yeah. you, you know, they, they think that somehow. I mean, I, I you know, my my kids are now old enough that they're about to go into college. Um, it, one of them is going to be applying this coming fall, and another one will be applying in three years. And all I could think of is how upset it makes me that the fix is in against them because they're white and and we're Jewish too. So like I I, I could say, look, we've been discriminated against and we, we certainly have even here yeah. in America. Uh, we, we've been tossed out of uh, the, the, the clubs. We've been tossed out of the law firms. We've been tossed out of hospitals. Uh, we've had a lot of discrimination, not to the level of, of blacks in America, but still a very extensive level. And we just started making our own <laughs> colleges, our own hospitals, our own law firms, and and, uh, and country clubs. So that that's how we responded to it. But the the resentment um, and the disparities. What I I was I always thought it was such a bad thing this affirmative action business because you know it's and it's also not even good for the highly qualified black student, let's say, who applies to UCLA Law School. And I bring up that because that's where I went to law school. And I remember this one uh, black student, I think he was uh, a year ahead of me, but everyone loved him. Um, I, I won't say his name, but he he was brilliant. Uh, in fact, he was so brilliant that he amjured just about every single class. Amjured means that you get the highest grade um, in law school uh, for every class. So it's a, quite an exceptional achievement. And it's very hard to do even in one class. That's how brilliant this kid was. And he also had other incredible things about him. He went to the best um, uh, school undergrad-wise and also got his SATs were sensational. His, he, I think he had a perfect LSAT score. I mean, he was, he was that guy, right? Yeah. yeah. He, he, went, he had to go around. He felt like he had to go around telling everyone, I want you to know, I did not check off the box saying African-American. I got here on my own, uh, entirely on my uh, regular scores and my merit. And he had to keep on saying that over and over again. And when he became a partner at a major, very good law firm in Los Angeles, again, he had to tell people this. I'm, they did not accept me because I'm black. Okay? <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, and this assumption is, and unfor unfortunately, it's a fair assumption that if you see somebody who's black, who went to Harvard, went to Stanford, went to UCLA for that matter, uh, you're, you're going to presume as an employer that this guy, this woman, got in because of lower standards. And that doesn't help him. It doesn't help anybody. So uh, it, it only promotes the very discrimination that they profess to want to avoid, which I, and, I, I thought is yeah. shocking. It's, it's ironic, uh, terribly ironic. But go ahead, Ward. And the reality is that the very term affirmative action had become, has become coterminous with Blacks. Yes. Oh, people that's believe, a great point. That's a great you know, point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People believe that that's just for black people. <laughs> and if you lived in that era and you were, you had any measure of success and you were black, it had to be from affirmative action. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And, and the fact that affirmative action was indicative of presumed lower standards generally the presumption has been correct is evidenced by the university of california eliminating the sat from yeah. consideration the moment that that uh, the voters of california said no we don't want you to repeal prop 209 right. um, so the critics of race neutrality, I won't say colorblindness, but race neutrality, just shot themselves in the foot over and over again by admitting that this was largely for black people and um, that it really meant the death of of merit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, just kind of an anecdotal story for you. I was recently in an Uber, and the driver was black. Uh, very nice guy. We we got to talking about all sorts of things. It was a long drive. 
like 40 minutes or so. And we talked about this and that. We talked about uh, church and God. And it, it was nice. We had a nice connection. And uh, and then we talked about kids. And I said, my kids were this age or that age. And I said, yeah, pretty soon my oldest son is going to be applying to school um, for college. And then he said, yeah, my my um, my kids are also applying. And, uh, and, and I said, where do you think they're going to go? I, I kind of kept it neutral. And he said, oh, you know, uh, my son, he's got a really good shot at Stanford, uh, at Harvard, Yale. He'll, def he'll definitely get into two or three of those schools, he said. Um, and I said, that's that's great. Uh, you know, does he have good uh, GPAs? And he said something like, yeah, he's got like a 3.8. Uh, and his SATs were like, I guess, uh, 1480 total, which is not bad. Um, but, you know, maybe not Stanford material. I, I just... And I just let him talk about it. He said he's going to get into every school that he applies to. And I thought, I, I just didn't want to tell him that the chances of my son, who has fantastic scores, as well as the background, he's the captain of the swim team, he's the president of the class, he's he's this and he's that. Uh, you know, I'd be very surprised if he got into, um, uh, I don't know, you, you, UC, uh, UC Davis, which is a good yeah. school, but it's not Stanford. And right. I'd be very surprised about all these things. And it shouldn't be that way, but here we are. And I I just found myself being resentful. Not at him, of course. You know, I don't I don't blame him for pursuing all the opportunities he has available to himself. So again, I don't I wasn't angry with him. I, I was so resentful of the program. And here it is. And and what bothered me the most was how they thought that, you know, people who are not able to avail themselves of the affirmative action programs that somehow were just silent on the issue. And therefore, you know, we're not thinking anything. We're not, we're not upset at all. We don't mind, you know, working really hard, our kids working really hard and seeing our kids work really hard all their lives to get the best SAT scores, to get the 4.5 GPA or what have you, and then be told that they can't get into any of the schools that they once yeah. dreamed of as, as little kids. That, that ain't right. And well, we palpable anger out there, I think. You know, we, we can't have hordes of people standing on the sidelines, seething with anger, which they don't express, but really angry about their presumptions about what's going on. We know it's been going on. Yeah. And um, I, I go to dialysis for my uh, uncooperative kidneys. Hmm. twice a week, Monday and Friday. And one of the people there who, he's a supervisor, is a black man. And he came through the system of affirmative action and he really spent more time arguing with me uh, on Mondays and Fridays when he was there, <laughs> you know, than he did looking after my well-being and one of the people that he supervises is a woman who did not come through the system the way he did and she i would say she's more competent than he is but he happened to have come through the system as an affirmative action guy and he fit all the boxes and checked all the boxes and is proud of it and she just trudges along doing the job expertly. But she is not an affirmative action person. And I always would look at the two of them and say, you know, given the two of them, I would take her in a heartbeat. Right. This guy. Yeah. Uh, who's her supervisor. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I recently went to a doctor. I had... Uh, uh, assist uh, on my waist and I needed to have that handled and there was a lump and uh, you always worry about that right when you, you see yeah. that and so I, I went to a doctor and at the recommendation of a friend I went to this doctor who happens to be black and uh, I went to him and and I talked to him and you know really really nice guy we talked about kids and everything else and that was fun and uh and I, it, it did go through my mind, Ward, like, okay, he's black. You know, am I, am I getting somebody who knows what he's doing? Yeah. You know, it doesn't, and then I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, 
be fair, Barack, you know, you know, be cool about this because, you know, maybe, maybe this is not brain surgery. Maybe this is something that's easy to do. You don't need to be, you know, highly qualified to do this. It's, uh, you know, like, I don't know, removing a mole or something. And, and I thought to myself, well, here I am wondering about my doctor. Now it turns out, you know, I, I had to investigate a little bit. He's excellent. He's just fantastic. And he's probably the best in his field, but what a shame for him um, to have to know that people are thinking this every single time he has a patient and that, that shouldn't be this way. It really shouldn't. It, it just hurts everybody at the end of the day. It hurts white people. It hurts black people uh, in terms of expectations and uh, achievement in every sense of the word. But other than that, affirmative action is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but well, here's, I, the, here's the thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of the kind of very interesting things I've noticed um, as I talk to older black folk, um, and for that matter, minorities, generally speaking, but like yourself, you're you're older, and um, they tend to have much more conservative values. They may not be, you know, um, uh, supportive of Trump, let's say, but they have conservative values, very strong ones at that. And it's likewise for the ladies who are who are minorities. I, I, fi I find that I resonate so strongly with the older generation of the black community and the Hispanic community. I, I can really connect with them. We feel almost identical in everything. Even and, and, and somebody like you has probably experienced a lot more discrimination than the 20 something uh, year old black kids of today. And and you your attitude has been, and because we've talked about it in the past, has been, you know what, these things did happen, but it's all about the way you respond to it and not making demands upon it and just being the best that you can be. Anyway, what do you think? Yeah. I agree with you. It's uh I think it's the church. I think it's God. Yeah. Um we were brought to believe that. Whatever the obstacles, we shall overcome them. We shall overcome. Yeah. And I think that the fact that we were a godly sort and went through the church and experienced what we experienced and came out of that with a degree of grace, believing that there is a supreme, a supreme being uh, older black people were more in line with the country and what's good for the country than the younger generation that doesn't seem as morally inclined as we were. <laughs> oh, I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, almost every, and this is maybe an unfair assumption on my part, uh, but a good assumption, almost every older black gentleman or lady that I speak to, uh, I, I I assume, and I think I'm right most of the time, is that they have faith, that they yeah. love that's a big part of their lives. Uh, when I say I, I routinely say God bless whenever I am in, in, you know encountering anybody, Uber Uber driver wise or whatever you know at the at the Seven Eleven store. I, as I leave, I say God bless. I don't care what they look like. I just say God bless. And if it's a older black woman or older black man, I know like 19 out of 20 times, they'll say, God bless you yeah. too. Yeah, I, yeah. I just love it. And I, it, it speaks exactly to what you say, Ward, that God is such a big part of it. I think another part of it, if I may, um, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think this kind of makes sense. Somebody like you, uh, who's been on the planet for uh, now more than eight decades, um, since I gave it away with your, your birth year, uh, somebody like you has seen dramatic improvements in uh, America's black-white relations um, and, and is seeing it only getting better, whereas a young person today of 20, whether he's black or white, um, he'll just assume that discrimination is rampant and it's never going to change and it's always been horrible and it's horrible right now. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, well it's not just that they see discrimination but they think that their ancestors had discrimination mm -hmm. and therefore they're entitled to compensation 
yes. on behalf of their ancestors. The reparations movement is more alive today than it was 20 years ago when it was largely discredited uh, as it was being promoted by Congressman John Conyers. Yes. Uh, yes. So, and I and without mentioning reparations as much or mentioning it, the big three and that new opinion sort of evidenced uh, what why it's important to reject race as a consideration in this country. Yeah. Um, and the reparations movement bespeaks of why it, it, it's it's something that gets into your bones. Yeah. Um, well, when we believed in God and went to church and looked at this in a more magnanimous way, Baraka had an uncle by by marriage who raised me when my mother died. He was part of what I call the committee of three. My Aunt Bert, Uncle James, and my maternal grandmother. And all three of them went to church religiously every Sunday. My grandmother went more often than that, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Wow. At some program that was going on. But Uncle James was a man who never got beyond the third grade. Mm -hmm. But he put on his hat and suit every Sunday and went to church. He went to, he, he, he was a, an avid hunter. <laughs> and he would go out on Friday afternoon into the woods. And invariably, one of his hounds would get lost. <laughs> and he would uh, go and knock on every door within eye shot of, of where he was. And he would say, my name is James Lewis, and and I lost my, my hound. If you see him, let me know. I'd sure appreciate it. Mm. And, and every one of the doors on which he knocked was a what someone you would probably call a white redneck. But he instantly established a connection. Yeah. And even though he, he couldn't find or tell you what the Second Amendment was about, um, or any other amendment of the Constitution, this man was a patriot to his core <laughs> and instantly, instantly established a relationship with that redneck uh, who would find his hound and huh. let him know about it in the middle of the week. There is something about the relationship that was established between black people whites and their connection to the country that you don't find right now i just don't see it you and just, I, yeah and, and, and every, yeah, every time that i'm um you know i uh, i'm in business uh with a black person or in a restaurant or otherwise and we just talk about whatever it might be you know can, oh can you believe the prices of these hamburgers or whatever i it, it still feels like the elephant in the room Right. Oh, yeah. you're black and I'm white. And and maybe you think that I'm just talking you up because I'm afraid that you're going to be assuming that I'm a racist or, you know, it, yeah. it's just so breathtakingly bad um, to do that. Whereas 20 and 30 years ago, that was largely lost that that I mean, yeah. and that's good that we lost it. That sense that we're just human beings first and and black and white, not even second, it, it, tertiary, maybe on a fourth level or fifth level. Uh, it, it was so in the background, and now it's totally in the foreground, and it shouldn't have been. Look, I I, I want to echo what you just said uh, about connection, because in many ways, you know, I'm I'm Jewish, I'm I'm devoutly Jewish. I love God. Um, I I could even be more devout if I if if I'd like to. I study Torah and otherwise, and I will tell you point blank that I find myself with so much more in common with a devout black Christian uh, gospel uh, churchgoer, uh, even though you know we don't follow Jesus as part of our faith, I, I have so much more in common with, with her than I do with some of my own fellow Jewish colleagues. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, 
it just goes to show that it doesn't matter if anything your skin color it matters what your values are that's right and and, and they that meaning the left they they they've decided again we talked in the very beginning of this about the salute the solution they they've always decided that the the country should be demographically studied and catered to based upon their skin uh so there's the black vote there's the hispanic vote there's the woman vote there's the gay vote and so on whereas but no one ever thought about hey where's the parent vote where is the i believe in god vote uh where is the um i, I want to keep my kids safe vote those sorts of things and that's all that really matters in the end we have to kind of navigate our ways and reinterpret all these groupings that the left throws at us which which classifications are actually meaningless uh and frankly counterproductive so yeah um, and yeah go ahead the, the tragedy <clears throat> that i saw as a guy on a personal level is that i was born with a c on my birth certificate c for color yeah. yeah and um i happened to live through that generation and that era and i was so delighted with the passage of the civil rights act of 64 even more so by the loving decision that the court handed down in 67 which said that you can't prohibit people from marrying because of the amount of melanin in their skin. Right. Um, but you know what? What was even more delightful to me was the passage of Proposition 209 yes. by the people of California and the rejection of efforts to repeal it in 2020 by the people by an even larger margin than the original passage here oh, that's, awesome. that's awesome and, that, and, that, yeah and you know what I, I dug deep on that very issue uh ward and as i understand it and you, again you can correct me if i'm wrong that the a really large part of those of the people who voted against the repeal and for the original prop, uh, proposition 209 were black yeah, well, I, I I look at the significance of that vote as the changing demographic, mostly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of new immigrants who will never personally encounter discrimination, but their kids might. And, and uh, a lot of them really just want to be good Americans. Yeah, they're very proud of of being able to say we are Americans. It is so I just, true. I've never. It is so true, and I I have seen, you know, I'm a lawyer and I do a lot of business litigation, and as a consequence, I meet a lot of people who are either starting a business or who have started a business, and many of them more have accents, yeah, uh, and and very strong accents, whether they're from Iran or from Korea or otherwise. One one of the gentlemen that I represented uh he doesn't speak a lick of english <laughs> but he he was so successful he's lived in america for for 30 years and and barely says is able to say hello how are you he speaks korean in koreatown but boy is he successful boy is he rich and um I, i'm i'm honored to be able to represent him because that makes money for me too why do i bring this up uh it's because i don't make any assumptions i, I see somebody with an accent yeah um and maybe even looks poor but I see his hunger to to do well, and I assume, if anything, and maybe wrongly so, that this guy is going to make it. He's going to be a multimillionaire in the future, and I better be nice to him. So, yeah, and that's the American way. That's what I love about it. So, black, white, purple, or whatever, and from whatever country you might be from, I don't make any assumptions because this guy that I'm talking to right now may be a major player, and I don't mind being able to say I knew him when. Um, and that's that's the the wonderful thing about America that that affirmative action really rejected. Um, it's it's a concept that everyone somehow belongs in a class, can never get out of their class. The poor will always be poor, uh, can never have any mobility. Uh, blacks will always suffer discrimination, and anytime they 
they have any sort of um, uh, negative encounter one way or the other with either in business or with the police, it's all because of their skin color. Because of the skin color. Yeah. Man, you're so right. You're so right. And I, it's that it's that I, nuance mm -hmm. that most people don't understand. Uh, or they might understand it if they just reject it. But Pete Wilson is a very dear friend of mine, and he uh, appointed me to the Board of Regents, and I, I had access to his office anytime I wanted it, and I would go in through the side door uh, and one day go in and went in and popped my feet up on the little settee there, and I was angry, and and I'd been to a regents meeting, and some of my colleagues were opposed to my challenging this whole issue of race preferences at the university. Hmm. And Pete said uh, something I'll never forget. He said, you know, you're so right. He said, we have to do this on the natural. And I said, what do you mean? I thought I knew, but I said, what do you mean on the natural? Right. He said, he said there's just something in, there's something in human nature that tells us when something is wrong. And this is one of those times when we know it's wrong, this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff that you're berating about. He said, stick with it. He said, you're right. You're right. We can do this on the natural. Hmm. And Interesting. That, that's, that's what these people fail to understand is that once you convince the American people that they should not discriminate against the Negro, they'll stop. Yeah. Once you convince them, they'll stop. And they will treat people fairly on the natural. You don't need a program. They'll do it on the natural. Oh, yes, yes. You know, I, okay, I love that. Now I get it. And that was very consistent. I believe Ann Coulter wrote extensively about this very issue, specifically with reference to the 60s. And she was pointing out, and I think very obviously and very correctly so, <clears throat> that a lot of restaurant owners, when they had a down day, let's say, uh, and uh, you know, formally they were not supposed to cater to a black family. Well, you know what? This black family has their, their money is as green as anybody else's. So when they came in, they say, "Yeah, come on in, have a have a have a seat. What, what would you like?" And it's just stupid to be racist. Yeah, it, doesn't make it any is. Sense. And and who knows where this person will be in in five years, ten years, twenty years? I mean, you don't want to have that sort of bad blood going on. You never know. So our, that's that's the beauty of our capitalist system and our democrat capitalist system, uh, which encourages people to just be nice to each other in business and otherwise. It, it just doesn't pay to segregate. It never did. Right. Right. So, that's what I love about America. And they're constantly, I'm talking about the left, uh, they're constantly trying to, you know, reimagine my vision of what America is. And I, and I, that part I really resent. Look, I mean, we talked before about this concept of the solution. They always have the solution. And I gave examples of uh, the minimum wage of um, uh, rent control, universal health care is another thing that I didn't think about. And then of course, affirmative action that they're, concept of how to resolve a problem is only is the the only way to resolve a problem and they're always wrong every one of those things i've mentioned they're they're wrong and if they just did it on the natural as your friend and by the way he's my friend too uh you know offered it then things would be much much better uh, as we sit here today yeah look i mean and, and affirmative action for many people on the left was the answer with a capital a and, but, but what's breathtaking, what makes me so angry about it is they never stop to, you know, propose a change in welfare reform, a change in school choice, which they bitterly uh, resist, right? Uh, a change in addressing fatherlessness among the black community, which is unfortunately a huge issue. Yeah, it is. And, and those things, uh, you know, are more nuanced. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, but the fact is, those are the reasons why. Uh, things that are happening in the black community for whatever reason uh, that that blacks may have a, a tougher time in America, I would propose that it's predominantly because of those three things and maybe a couple of other things, but it ain't racism. And that's right. it yeah, 
Yeah. So that's where I think. Wait, am I am I off the mark on that? What do you think? No, you are not. You're not. You're not. Uh, Tim Scott, for example, uh, when he was went on the View, and they tried to uh, bring him down by saying that he was the exception to the rule, huh. not the rule itself, and he challenged them and defended where we are as a country and essentially said it ain't wrong for a black man to be a patriot you know yeah and it and it's working it's working the black people are not unique in the sense that there are only one or two of us who've been successful you can find it in every walk of american life yep and now that there is no longer affirmative action and the affirmative action mindset that came along with it, I think in 20 years, we'll look back on this and say that was a very significant decision yeah. to help shape the new black because the new black does not go to church, has no connection with institutions that promote American values, so the this new black this new black is almost left to the vagaries of the institutions that are not they don't have his best interest at heart. They still believe that he's a weakling, incapable of standing on his own, and there but for the grace of them, he's going to he's going to fall through the cracks, his income is going to be less than whites. Um, and not even ignoring, or even ignoring the fact that the, that whites are not responsible for his condition, he is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it flies in the face of everything that we believe as Americans. And what, what's, what I would, say is one of the greatest crimes of affirmative action and the whole attitude about reparations for that matter, which is that they kind of go hand in hand, is this, you know, what kind of message are you sending to a young black American, a young, a young minority of any kind to yeah. say to him, gosh, we have to do this because the fix is in against you. And uh, life is so unpleasant uh, just by virtue of your skin color uh, that that is that is a crime in and of itself. It, man, know, oh man, is it ever? Yeah. And what's interesting also, Ward, is that I, I think that Clarence Thomas brought this up maybe during the oral argument. I haven't read the the full opinion yet. Maybe he raised it in the opinion. You would know better than me. But affirmative action has been around uh, since 1964, so almost 60 years. And you know, you, you, they, they it started off, I believe, as a four year program. Uh, certainly a, a temporary program. And then, you know, following the adage of uh, Ronald Reagan that there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program, uh, it just continued on and on, you know, because, well, we haven't fixed it yet, so we got to keep on going. Uh, you know, as a young black man, I, I would say to myself, well, wait, I mean, if this hasn't worked for 60 years, then why would we think it's going to con continue working by doing for another 60 years, let's say. At, at what point do we say, okay, all good. Uh, we, we seem to be well represented in every sense and, and shape and form, but um, but we're not dealing with the actual problem. It's like a doctor who prescribes a certain drug for a certain ailment, and the drug is clearly not working. The ailment continues on for 60 years, and this doctor continues to say, okay, well, just keep it keep it going, buddy. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> at some point, you say, I think, doc, I think you're a quack. I think you got this wrong. Can you try to give me something else? Maybe something a little bit more than just this this placebo that you think that is going to fix me. So that's well, why I, I think affirmative action in that regard. Yeah, go ahead. I think I think we have to look at affirmative action in the context of Kennedy. Yeah, JFK issued the first executive order one night. 10925, I think it was, or 950, uh, in 1961. 
And at the time, he said, race has no place in American life or law. And he wanted us to end discrimination. Yeah. That's what affirmative action was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lyndon Johnson comes along in 1963. And by 1995, King has sawed on him so much about doing something for the Negro that LBJ, as a Southerner, as a Texan, who was not persuaded so much by King's arguments, really felt that as a Southerner, uh, those niggers would be and would be grateful to us for 200 years, he said, uh, by affirmative action, if we put some goals and timetables in it. And that's what he did. Wow. And he, he gave us affirmative action 2.0, which altered what JFK had done, Barack. I mean, JFK wanted no race consideration because he felt this is not going to turn out right. right. LBJ mm-hmm. was vulnerable to the political winds and wanted to get this guy off his back. So that's what LBJ did with his revised executive order. And there we went. Wow. The country was changed with regard to the issue of race. And it went from affirmative action in 1965, revised affirmative action 2.0, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We must celebrate our diversity. And the court saw all of this. And the big three, as I call them now, they said, whoa, this is getting out of control and you're going in the wrong direction. And they were so prescient in their observations that time will record in the fullness of time how we were saved from disaster by those three and their understanding of the nuances of race and where this was all headed. And yeah, they pushed the reset button. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, I, 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 God willing that that will be the case, and I think it will be the case. We have to get rid of this uh, really evil institution of of uh, race based preferences. Uh, I mean, what's the expression? You have to kill um, a certain group of people in order to save them. I mean, it 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 never made sense to me when I was a kid when I heard that for the first time, and I don't think that. Racism to racism to stop racism makes any any more sense either. Right. Um, what I'm and this is more of a question for you, Ward. Um, it's an observation. First of all, it's wonderful to hear you talk about the history of the Civil Rights Act and affirmative action and your own experience, of course, and how to deal with it and such. And at the same time, it makes me sad, Ward, because here you are. Uh, a black man of incredible stature that must devote this incredible amount of time to fight off something that is so un-American that should never have been instituted in the first place. And I think about the enormous, unfortunate waste of time that so many of us as a, as a nation have had, had to deal with. So that that's my observation for one thing. Well, you're very charitable. Uh, oh, you but I don't disagree with the fact that you and I and others are not wasting time because we owe it to yeah. our country and to future generations. Well, it's a, it's a form of justice, I think, and and I feel a little bit like uh, you know a family whose uh, daughter was kidnapped and murdered and left in a ditch and, you know, it was a mystery and that no one could figure it out. And now the family spends the next uh, 40 years 
trying to bring this monster to justice. They finally find him, and then, you know, he's on death row, and then finally uh, he gets executed, you know, finally. You know, but yeah. you, you would ask the family, that, of course, they would say, I, I wish, you know, this man had never entered into my daughter's life at all. I mean, of course. Yeah. Um, and and I feel a little bit like that with affirmative action when it, when you look about the destruction that it has wrought, um, which leads me to my next question <laughs> to you. Sometimes I like to I, I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It's a it's a it's a wonderful life. It's a great movie with. Um, yeah, I did years music. ago. Yeah. So it's such a great movie. And the, the basic concept for those who don't know about the movie is it's a man who is feeling very sorry for himself. He He made a mistake at the bank and. He feels no good, and and he says to himself, uh, you know, I wish I, the world would be better without me. I, I wish I were never born. And then an angel named Clarence comes by and and says, oh, you you really think that? Let me show you what the world would look like without you. And throughout the movie, this Clarence angel um, shows the main character, played by Jimmy Stewart, um, that you know, he saved this person's life. He, he helped rectify this person's life and, and all the good that he did throughout his life. And anyway, I, sometimes I'd like to play that kind of scenario when it comes to affirmative action. Like what would, what would the world have been like? And this is kind of in reverse of the George Bailey story, right? The wonderful life story, because affirmative action was such a crippling institution. Uh, what would, America have looked like had we never had affirmative action of any kind had had let's say John Kennedy never been shot um and he continued on as president and maybe get reelected which he probably would have been in 1964 um what what kind of world would it be in America at least uh what would be the the status of the ordinary black american uh, i i i put it fascinating yeah, isn't it? I mean, I, I would just yeah. I love to think these hypotheticals, these thought experiments where, yeah, I'm sure there would still be some discrimination going on. But like you said, on or Pete Wilson's told you uh, on the natural, um, eventually people would realize, no, I, I can work with this guy. And if this guy, if this doctor graduated from the, you know, Harvard University, well, and he's it doesn't matter what his color is. He, it just means that he must be a fantastic doctor. Right. Regardless of his skin. You, but we've been yeah, trained yeah. to think in such a different way, and it's so unhealthy for everyone. Had we done this, had we never had affirmative action, had we never had Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, create the welfare state that aff afflicted mostly the black community, um, and then fatherlessness as well, and all those things we talked about, what would the world look like for for black Americans? I mean, I I, I just I it only have been yeah, better. I, I look at this. Uh, and looking at your approach of what ifs, uh, what if we had a, uh, an, a political visionary like Kennedy who said, you know, skin color is no dif different from eye color or yeah. hair and just just develop an ad that uh, asks, which car goes faster? The <laughs> black car, the white car? Oh, that's great. You yeah, know, just to raise the, raise the question of how relevant is skin color? Wow. And, and I've had the pleasure of owning a green Jaguar in my life, a <laughs> white Cadillac, and a black Mercedes. And the, the best car I've ever owned was the black Mercedes. Um, not because it went faster or anything. It, they just made a better car. Wow. Yes. Oh, I love it. Well, listen, uh, Ward, I, I, I think we should wrap it up, but I just want to let you know what a pleasure it's been connecting with you, speaking with you about this very important decision uh, that has recently come out. And, uh, I'm just so proud that we are finally able to get to this point. Uh, what a what a long, strange trip it's been, as the Grateful Dead would say. Uh, and we're looking now upon the the devastation that it has wrought. But like you said, uh, God willing, in 20 years from now, we'll look back on this moment and say that was the beginning of a great improvement 
in the lives of every American, not just black Americans. Bork Connolly, thank you so I much agree. for being on the Brock, uh, the Brock Larry podcast today. And uh, God bless. And, and I hope to have you many more times in the future as we discuss uh, these, these and similar issues. Thank you, my friend. I've enjoyed it. All right. God bless. Talk soon. In the meantime, this is the Brock Lurie Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk with you next week.